If everyone would please turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. Our text this morning will be John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. And this morning we read of Jesus' continuing uh, comfort to His disciples on the eve of His death. He has announced His departure. He's announced that He would be betrayed. He's announced that Peter's going to deny Him three times. And in the course of all of that, we find that the disciples' hearts are very troubled, and understandably so. And this is something that can really hit home for us. Because there are many things in this life that can, can cause trouble to our hearts. You know, whether it's the death of a loved one, or uncertainties because of various circumstances that uh, in, inevitably come about. Stresses within the family, or stresses at work. Or a whole host of other things that end up causing us stress. You know, the thing is, is that there's no shortage of things that can cause trouble to our hearts in this life. Many things can. But what is the remedy? Some may turn to alcohol or self-medicating with drugs of various kinds. Some turn to relationships or worldly passions. There's only... These are only a temporary cover. These only bring temporary joy or temporary numbness. These things will inevitably uh, quit working after a time. The drunkenness will wear off. The high will come down. The worldly passions and accomplishments will not suffice when you're left alone. But here's the very thing that Jesus says about having a troubled heart. Here's the remedy. And it's a very simple one, really. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. You know, when I was um, taking my classes at seminary, I had to take a few uh, counseling classes. And in one particular one, they were... Uh, focusing on uh, various methods of counseling and, and comparing Christian counseling against secular counseling. And uh, there was a paper that they had given to us that had a number of different quotes on it from secular psychologists and psychiatrists. And they were talking about patients who would have long-term healing uh, as a result of the Christian faith. Well, these are not believers, but these are secular psychiatrists and psychologists that are giving credence to the Christian faith. And there's long-term healing here. And they're readily acknowledging that. And it, it uh, seems to work better, obviously, than secular counseling. Because secular counseling or psychiatry or psychology can only give you a temporary fix. Can only put a band-aid on it. To put your hope in something temporary in order to help give you that gumption to keep going in life. Or whatever the case may be. That's not how it is with the Christian faith. The Christian faith, we have an eternal hope. And it's even recognized, that belief is recognized by the secularist of what keeps us going and what keeps us moving and what keeps us enduring even the very difficult times of life. And it's our eternal hope that is fixed upon the Lord Jesus. 
Something that comes after this life. And that blessed hope is what keeps us moving and persevering. Many things can indeed trouble our hearts. But it's an unwavering trust in the Lord that provides that endurance to get through whatever may come. And that's where we have to go back to. That's where we have to focus upon. It's very easy to look at the circumstance that you're in or the stresses that you're enduring or the heartache that you have. It's very easy to look at that and just indulge further in it. Because your mind is not captivated by the very thing it should be, which is Christ Jesus. We can get into despair. Our minds begin to cause us even greater overwhelming thoughts that only add to the circumstance. But here's what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's what he says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now that seems like a very simple explanation. Like, well, what does all that entail? Well, it entails the very thing that we're talking about and we have been talking about for weeks. Is that our focus, our hearts, our emotions, everything should be focused in upon Him who is our eternal hope. So as we work our way through this passage, I pray that indeed it would be a great encouragement to us. Let's look at this together. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Word of God. Verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives to our hearts as well. Father, help us to understand this to the best of our ability. We pray that the Spirit of God would move mightily, applying this passage to our hearts, that we would indeed carry it out by his power and to be encouraged through his continued presence with us. May Christ be magnified in our hearts through this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> now here's the scene, as we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. Jesus has ended his public ministry. He's in the upper room with his disciples. His disciples are debating amongst themselves who are the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus girds himself. He washes their feet. He says to Judas, who by this time has been possessed by Satan, what you do, do quickly. Judas goes out and then Jesus begins to express some of the even greater truths of what he's getting ready to accomplish. 
about his glorification, how the Father will be glorified in him. And he announces to them, for a little while longer, I am with you. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He gives them the new commandment of loving one another. Peter asks the question, where are you going? Jesus gives him the answer, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter gives his his great devotion to Christ in saying, or expresses his devotion to Christ in saying, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus announces to Peter, he's going to deny him three times. So you have the disciples that have been rebuked by our Lord in the sense of they're debating on who's the greatest. And through Jesus's act of washing their feet, that was a great rebuke against them of the greatest in their midst, washing their feet. Then they hear about Peter. Peter's going to deny him. They hear about Jesus. He's getting ready to leave. He's going to depart. And the fact of Peter denying him three times is an indication to them, perhaps. Apparently, a great trial is getting ready to come here. So, what, what are we going to do? So, their hearts are troubled. Understandably so. We've just been rebuked by our Lord. Now he's getting ready to leave. Peter's going to deny him. A trial's coming. And so what Jesus says here in chapter 14 is being built upon his, his words in chapter 13. Do not let your heart be troubled, he says. In light of all of these things that you're expressing or that you're experiencing, the anxiety... The dismay that Peter is feeling uh, after Jesus announces to him, this is what's going to happen. What does he say? Do not let your heart be troubled. Because troubled, heart, troubled hearts can and do deceive us. That's a, a very true statement, of course. And like I said, the thoughts of our mind, they can add to the situation and add to the overwhelming waves of the storm. Of our circumstance and allow them to hit us even harder. The disciples are going to have some troubling times ahead. These things are occurring in Jesus' midst. And now when they do occur of him of his arrest and his beating and his crucifixion, that's going to add even more to the disciples. And so in light of these things, Jesus is, is trying to prepare them in light of what he has said and what is going to happen. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Even in the face of things when they seem to be, uh, when everything just seems to be defeated. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because again, a troubled heart can deceive us. A troubled heart causes various ideas to go through our minds. Some true, some not. And it only adds to. So Jesus is comforting his disciples. And again, this is so amazing to just view that that circumstance itself. That Jesus is comforting disciples, even though he's the one getting ready to go die. And yet his 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 heart and his mind is to his disciples to prepare them. Where he's going, they cannot come. So their hearts are filled with sorrow. I mean, this is their Lord whom they can see and touch. 
This is their advocate. This is their protector. Their friend, their companion. And he's getting ready to depart. Getting ready to leave. We can kind of understand that to a certain extent. As we've had uh, loved ones that we are very close to. To depart. We know that feeling of emptiness. Feeling of loss. Or they move to another state. And you very rarely get to see them. We, we can kind of identify with some of that. But his... His words to them is, stop being troubled, or rather, do not be troubled any longer. Here's his answer. Here's the remedy for a troubled heart. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These are in the imperatives. This is a command on the part of Jesus. In answer to all the troubles that come in life, here's the remedy. It's not found within you. The remedy is believe in God and believe also in me. One writer says this, he consoles the very men who have just demonstrated their selfishness and who are going to be offended in him. But that's where his heart's at. Jesus' own heart had been troubled earlier in the Gospel of John upon the realization that his time had come. The hearts of his disciples are troubled. And just as Jesus turned his attention to the Father and he focused upon the Father, so too Jesus is, is calling them to do the same. Except adding in, of course, since he is God in the flesh, believe in God, believe also in me. This is the solution. This is the remedy. He doesn't really give a full explanation of things. But this is his answer to them. One writer says this, The danger with troubled people is not that they will believe nothing, but that they will believe anything. Troubled people need peace and affirmation. That's the problem. That's why a deceitful heart it can't be trusted. It's not that we'll believe nothing, it's that we'll believe anything. And you start grasping for anything, especially in those troubled times. Give me something that will give me hope. Give me something that will give me joy or bring me out of this. And end up grasping at the wrong things. That's why the focus must be here. Believe in God. Believe in the truths of God. Believe in the reality that, uh, of what God has shown to you and has disclosed to you through the scriptures. Believe in Christ Jesus himself. He's saying to them, they have seen all the things that he did. They've seen him open the eyes of the blind. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him feed 5,000 people. They've seen all of his miracles. So believe. Trust. Know with certainty that I am he. That's what he's, that's what he's bringing out to them. That their faith in, in him would enable them to endure the, the days that would follow. But they had to be focused upon him. And to add to that comfort, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. The comfort is given even more as Jesus expresses the, the blessedness of his departure. Because of his departure, these things are going to come about. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Some translations say mansions. But it's really not the idea of mansions, though that's, that's obviously a, uh, 
a big belief today. We're going to have a mansion in heaven and all of this sort of thing. And it's, it's dwelling places. And there's a reason why Jesus is saying this. But it's interesting, first off, that he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, what does that mean? Was heaven not already in existence? Yeah, it was. So what's he going to prepare? Well, if we begin to look at this just a little closer, then we'll see it's not that he is leaving to go to a particular place and prepare it for all the coming people. Because heaven already existed. The saints were already there. All those that had died beforehand. In the Old Testament, those that were truly trusting in the Lord, they're already there. So, is he talking about preparing heaven for them to dwell? Or perhaps talking about himself carrying out the necessary preparations for them to go there? Because that's what's in view. He's going to carry out the necessary preparations that they can go there. And that is once again pointing us to his work of redemption that he's getting ready to accomplish. I'm going to prepare it. In the sense of, I'm going to carry these things out that you may go. That's what he's talking about. And in light of that, in light of him comforting his disciples and telling them that he's preparing the way. And he's going to do it through the cross. And then the, the great encouragement that he gives in light of these things is, In my father's house are many dwelling places. There's room for everybody. And as they dread the separation from him, he assures them of the dwelling places in his father's house. That they will be received there and will have a reunion with him. One writer says it like this. He describes it as a beautiful apartment building. With ever so many completely furnished and spacious apartments or dwelling places. And no crowding of any kind. There's plenty of room in heaven. Room for, one, uh, room for me, but also room for you, is the idea conveyed here. That's the idea. There are many dwelling places there. No one's going to be excluded. I'm going to go. I'm preparing the way that you can come too. And you will be received there. And none will be turned away because there's many dwelling places there. There's room for everybody. That's, that's the idea. It's not the idea of having a mansion over here and a mansion over here. Or as some, some who like to express their humility would say, well, I just hope that there's a little shack over here for me. Now, God has prepared something so glorious and grand that it would, it, it's not even comparable to anything that we can find here on earth. Because eye has not seen nor his ear heard. Neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But the idea there is they're troubled because of the separation that they are getting ready to, to experience. And he's going to that place that they will be received as well. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
Now, this could be speaking of a few different ideas there of his coming again. Many would take it, of course, to be the second coming of our Lord. It could also be looked at in the same sense of for those that have died in the Lord, that he delights to receive them in the place that he has prepared the way for them to be. You know, that really, that, that gives us some, some great comfort to our hearts, at least it should, because when we think of death, we think of death in the sense of, oh, after this is over, I'm going to stand before him, and then they're going to have this, this big movie reel, and it's going to play out all the things that I had done in my life, and all the sins that I have committed against my Lord, and they're just going to play it back for me. And that's not it at all. Do we believe or do we not believe that Jesus paid for your sins in full? Do we believe or do we not believe that in Him we have forgiveness of sins? The forgiveness of our trespasses. Because here's the thing about forgiveness. And this is something we've talked about before. We have the, that great language within the scriptures about forgiveness. That he, he takes our sins and He casts them as far as the east is from the west. He he. Uh, puts them in the, the sea of forgetfulness, all this sort of language. Does God really forget? Well, no, because God cannot not know something. He knows everything. But what does it mean? That these things will no longer be held to our charge. They will no longer be held against you. Because Christ paid for them in full. So if Christ has paid for them in full and they are covered under the blood of Christ, he has satisfied God's justice over everything that we have done, we are doing and we will do. Then there is no movie reel to play back for us. But for the Lord to delight in receiving us when we get there. That's the blessedness of the, of, of the death of, a, of the believer. Is that there's nothing to fear. Because he's not. Your judge, if you're in Christ, he's your father. A father who delights to receive his sons and daughters. So he receives them to himself. That where he is, they will be also. And he adds those words to them. And you know the way where I am going. Now, he's not saying it, and it seems as if Thomas perhaps thinks, uh, again, of the certain path that he's taking or the destination. Because Thomas does say, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? We don't even know the destination. How can we know the path to get there? We don't even know where you're going. Perhaps he is thinking that Jesus is speaking about the way that he must go. And that we must travel that way also to be with the Lord. But he's missing the point. He's missing what Jesus is saying. You already know the way because you know me. That's what he's getting at. And that's why he adds those words. To speak back to Thomas. There in verse 6. Thomas is indeed the spokesman here for the group. He obviously can't bear the thought of Jesus departing. And you see the heart of Thomas in that. I mean, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. You see that, that emotion that's coming out. How, how can we know the way? 
He's showing his devotion, but also his lack of understanding. So here Jesus gives the sixth of the I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he says to Thomas. You don't travel the way of Christ in order to get to heaven. He is the way. That's the point. And He is the only way. These, these words of way, truth, and life, they have that definite article before them. He is the way, the truth, the life. He doesn't merely show the way. Some people would maybe interpret it that way. That Jesus shows us the way to God because of his great moral life that he lived. How good that he was. How he pleased God. These are the things that we must do too in order that we can go to heaven. Jesus was our great example. Well, Jesus is not just a moral example that we ought to follow in order to receive heaven. It's not about how good you can be that God would allow you into heaven. And if you think that you're good enough to get into heaven, well, that's just an insult to God. Because you're not. That's the whole point of why Jesus came. Because we're not. And we don't like to think in those kind of terms. We don't like to, to think bad of ourselves. But it's about acknowledging the very fact that without Christ we have no hope. If you... Led on to everybody else the things that go on in your mind. I'd say you would be a little bit embarrassed to share those things. Why? Because our minds are full of filth oftentimes. Our hearts are full of it. And because of those very things, it shows the depravity and the reality of our hearts. Our position before a holy God. And that's why it is necessary to understand Jesus doesn't give us the example. Jesus is the one who carries out all that is required. All the preparation was accomplished in him. He doesn't just show the way. He is the way. He is the only way. He is the only path to God and the only path from God to man. You need to understand that. God only communes with man and only enters into relationship with man because of Christ. That's it. There is no other. Christ is the only way that man may be received to God. It's interesting. He says these particular attributes of he's the way, the truth, and the life. And when we talk about the attributes of God and His character and His nature, all of those things, He is infinitely all of these attributes. It's not one part of Him that's truth and one part of Him that's life and one part of Him that's love and one part of Him that's goodness, one part of Him that's righteousness. He is to the infinite degree all of these at the same time. And Jesus is demonstrating those attributes and saying what He is right here. He is the truth. He doesn't just speak truth. But rather, He's the embodiment of truth. He's the fullest revelation of God to the world. One says that He is the only dependable source of redemptive revelation. 
as we read of in the first chapter, he is the one who explains God. He is the one who is in the bosom of the Father who explains him. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, as the writer of Hebrews says. He's the visible image of the invisible God. Christ Jesus is the one that demonstrates God to the world, who explains God to the world. Because if we want to know what God's like, we look at Christ. Every word that he spoke, every action that he performed, everything that he did was testifying to the world of who God is. Putting on display the glory of the Father in everything that he did. That's why later on, as we'll get into next time, next week, that's why he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus has been putting him on display for the entirety of his mission. He's the embodiment of, of all truth. The scripture says that in him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All truth finds its, its foundation within him. The only objective truth that is in existence is grounded in Christ. All true truth is His. And that's what He's, that's what he's bringing about. He is the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. He's a, the embodiment of God's truth. He's the one who expresses God's truth. And this is up against any error, up against any lie. You look to Christ and you know that what he says and what he has done and what he has accomplished is indeed the truth of God. And he is the life. He's the source of all life, both physical and spiritual. Here referring to more of the spiritual life, eternal life as opposed to eternal death and damnation. John opens that up as well in the first chapter. In him was life and that life was the light of men. He has life within himself, as he says in John chapter 5. And it is he who grants eternal life to those who come to him. The passage in Isaiah chapter 9, when it expresses those, those great characteristics of, of the coming one. He's wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. It actually means father of eternity. He's the one who possesses immortality. Who, who alone has that quality and that characteristic, that attribute of eternality. And on account of this, he's able to grant eternal life to others. He is the source of spiritual life. Whereas we were dead in our transgressions, through his work, we are made alive. Our soul is revived. That we can receive the truth of God. And that we can call upon Christ who is the only way. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't say, through me in another means. He says, through me. And here again, you see, you're seeing that the exclusivity of the Christian faith. The scripture tells us, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation and no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name given but that of Christ Jesus. Does Christianity claim to be the only exclusive way to the Father, to God? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus said so. Jesus being God in the flesh, everything that he speaks is truth. He just got done telling us he's the way and the truth. He's the only way to the Father. He's the embodiment of truth. He is the only one that grants spiritual life. It comes from no other. He is not one of many ways. And people will say this. Well, if you live in the West, then you're probably a Christian. If you live in the East, maybe you're something else. And we fail to understand that the Christian faith is not exclusively a Western uh, practice here, but it spans the entire globe. The Christian faith is everywhere. Because God's kingdom is everywhere. The gospel has went forth to the nations. The gospel is conquering hearts even in the remotest parts of the earth. Even in the places where people are being persecuted the most. The kingdom is growing. He is the only way. There is no other way. There are no good works that can get you there from other religions. If there were other things that you could do aside from believing in Christ, then Christ didn't have to come. And Christ didn't have to endure all the things that he did. The fact that he did come and the fact that he endured everything that he did is a demonstration, one, of what it takes in order to redeem sinners. It takes the death of God's only son. And to demonstrate this is the only way. This is the means. Every other world religion will have some kind of a way that you must work to the Lord. Works of righteousness... Whatever it is to try to appease him. But we have to understand these very qualities of God. He's holy. He's in a category all to himself. He's the epitome of purity. The epitome of absolute perfection. And his holiness being the sum of all the divine attributes of God. Perfection. To simply allow sinners to come into his perfect heaven who are not perfect themselves, that's unjust. And his holiness will not allow an unjust act. His holiness cries out for justice. So, how can God's justice be satisfied? There are not enough works that you could ever do. Because by the time that you figure out uh, I've, I've offended God and so I must do these things in order to appease Him. You've already admitted readily that you've already messed up. You've already made a mistake. You've already sinned. You've already transgressed. What are you going to do to make up for that? You can't. So how is it that God can be just and justify sinners? And the only answer is found in Christ. Because Christ alone is the one who carries out all the perfection of the law of God. Christ alone is the only one who took upon himself the Father's righteous indignation against sin and satisfied his justice. Christ alone is the only one who rose again from the dead, being vindicated to be who he claimed to be. Christ alone is the only one who sits at the right hand of the Father. 
Now through Christ, because of all his finished work, his righteousness is credited to us as if we had done it. Our sins have been satisfied in him because God's justice poured out upon him so that through faith in him alone, we are justified in the sight of God. He is the only one. He is the only way. And there is no other. And these are the things that we have to think on. These are the things that we have to contemplate, especially if we're not in Christ. There is no other way. God's righteous indignation, His righteous hatred against sin will be satisfied one way or the other. Whether it was in Christ or whether upon you when you enter into the final state. There is no other way. Now, for those that are in Christ, for those that have graciously received the salvation of a gracious God, those that have called upon Him in faith, we have an anchor for our soul. We have a sure and steady hope. And that's Him. There's so many things, and perhaps you're going through them now, whatever it may be. You got turmoil in your life because of whatever. The very anchor for your soul is often the one that we tend to run from and ignore. Just Christ Jesus. That's why we are commanded look to Him, fix your eyes upon Him, the author and the finisher of your faith. Consider him who has endured such hostility of sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Put the focus on the sovereign one. Not on the circumstance. But upon him. For this is the remedy is to believe. Believe in God. Believe in Christ. Believe in what he says. That's the, that's the thing. We, we want to claim Christ and all of these sort of things, but we, we don't ever believe what He says. We want to turn in our, to our own devices. And those things are only going to leave us more empty and in more heartache. Christ is that anchor for our soul. He says, for the troubled heart, believe, trust, even when we don't understand, that's why the proverb says, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's faith in him. That's true saving faith. And that's actually another thing there. That's the difference between having a superficial faith and a true saving faith. True saving faith believes the things of God and commits our way to them. One writer says this, only, only in the U.S. could a massive group of people never read the Bible, never pray, barely attend church if ever, rarely care to evangelize, yet still be 100% convinced that they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, come judgment, because they walked an aisle and repeated a prayer. That's a pretty heavy indictment. True saving faith is a faith that changes you. 
a faith that grows in the times of your turmoil as you look to Christ. These times are not enjoyable. There's nothing enjoyable about enduring various trials, but the outcome of the trial is something to rejoice in because the outcome is going to be a greater and stronger faith on your part that God has has created within you as a result of these things. Know that there is good that comes thereafter because we only serve a good God. Know that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will indeed guard your hearts and your minds in Him, even when it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you can have peace, but you do. Because the Spirit of God has worked that in you. Trust in the Lord who has brought you to Himself and will gladly receive you on the day that you enter into heaven. Believe in Him in the times of the great stresses in your life and the great heartaches in your life. Commit your way to Him and trust for He will guide you into all righteousness and He will make your path straight. Don't lose heart. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives to us and the strength that it provides us. Here you tell us exactly what we need to do. And Father, I pray that by the Spirit of God, you will enable us to carry these things out. Father, thank you for the work of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for his life and for his death and for his resurrection, for his work as as our intercessor, for our mediator. Thank you for everything that he does, everything that he did, everything that he will do. All of that by a pure act of grace, out of your great love. You provide these things. Thank you. Father, if there are any here that don't know your love and the kindness and the grace and mercy that is found in Christ. Father, I pray that today you would open their hearts, that they would receive him with true saving faith. Thank you so much for this wonderful passage of scripture. And I pray that indeed we would grow in our understanding of it and the practical aspects of it as well. So you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.